Songwriter Benjamin Todd wrote these lyrics in a song about him and his wife. He writes, I've been flipping through the sketches that you drew. Some of them are shining and some of them are blue. Because one day I'm a sweetheart and the next I'm a brute. I'm so confused. I'm sorry for the things that I said when I was drunk. I didn't mean them then. And I hope you lied when you whispered goodbye. That line, one day I am a sweetheart and the next I'm a brute. Anyone know that feeling? Uh, We experience it for ourselves, surely, at some level. But we also have that unfortunate, disconcerting experience with others that we know. uh, Much like this wife experiences it with her husband. Maybe you'll remember at the height of, you know, the beginnings of the Me Too movement uh, when Louis C.K. was being exposed for various uh, 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 acts of of indiscretion uh, and impropriety. Uh, Comedian and friend Sarah Silverman uh, did an interview and was asked very pointedly. She had been so outspoken concerning the movement at one level prior to, and now her own friend was being accused of these things. And she said this. Well, it's a real mind trick, you know, because I love Louie, but Louie did these things, and both of those statements are true, and I just can't keep from asking myself, can you love someone who did bad things? I mean, can you still love them? So I hope it's okay if I'm at once very angry for the women that he wronged and the culture that enabled it, and at the same time, I'm also very sad because he is my friend. You know, this is the human condition. What a muddled and confusing mess. But of course, what is more confusing is the fact that this mess remains in us who have come to Christ by faith. I mean, that confusion doesn't cease, but in fact, in some sense, according to the scripture, it increases all the more. Listen to Paul's own words this morning. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Have you ever felt that? Whether you can explain it theologically or not, have you ever experienced the tension where you want to do the right thing, to be better, to pursue the good, but you don't? And you don't because at another level, you don't want to do the right thing and you don't want to pursue the good. And you know that because you don't do it. (laughs) I mean, how is it that we both love and hate our vices at the exact same time? I mean, how is it that we desire and resist virtue at one and the same time? I mean, as Augustine said concerning this topic, all this is us. All this desiring the right thing and not desiring, that is us in a nutshell. One day you're a sweetheart and the next you're a brute. And we come to a section of Paul's epistle that puts in stark relief these two realities, the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. These two, he says, are opposites and they're enemies, they're at war, and we feel it. Because at one level, that war is within us. And so let us see this morning as we begin, first, dueling desires. Paul begins with an exhortation, walk by the Spirit and you will not complete or fulfill the desires of the flesh. And you will see here, the Spirit 
And its work is writ large over this text, in both chapters 5 and 6. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. You live by the Spirit, so keep in step with the Spirit. And as much as the Spirit is written large over this text, its opposite is shown throughout as well in stark relief. The desires of the flesh. The flesh is opposed to the Spirit. The works of the flesh are these, having crucified the flesh. And at one level, it sounds like while they're in opposition to each other, that the Spirit has had this complete victory. Paul seems to say at some level that it's all done. Walk by the Spirit and you won't complete the desires of the flesh. Those who, have, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh. It seems like it's a once-for-all finished reality. But then it also seems to say that there is this massive tension that exists currently within each of us. That while they are opposed to each other, and they, uh, that the one keeps the other from doing what you as a person want to do. Notice, what, if there's no longer a battle going on, why does Paul continue with all these exhortations like, do not become conceited. Brothers, if any of you is caught in a transgression, keep watch over yourselves, he will go on to say. So at some level, while the Spirit has done its work and made us new creations, at another level, there's still this whole battle going on with this reality that Paul calls the flesh. And while confusing theologically, and it is, I think experientially, we all can sort of nod our heads saying, yeah, I mean, I know that feeling, or I have experienced that reality, whether I can name it perfectly in theological terms or not. I mean, think of this reality. The Spirit of God is the agent of the new creation, meaning the same spirit that hovered over the waters in this creation and formed and fashioned it has started the new creation at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A new creation has begun by the work of the spirit. As the prophets foretold, the spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh in the last days and so forth. The spirit is the agent of the new creation. Well, the flesh is the agent of this fallen age that began with the fall of Adam. And you, dear brothers and sisters, live in both of those worlds, in both of those ages, concurrently. You live here in flesh and bone with that fallen nature, as we will see, but you're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You already have resurrection life within you. The very spirit of the new creation has been given to you as a down payment and a deposit of the reality that you will inherit everything that that new world has to offer in Christ. You live in heaven right now by faith, seated with Christ by the Spirit. You have a brand new nature, born of heaven itself within you. And at the exact same time, you live in a fallen world, that part's easiest for us to see, with a fallen nature, that part's easy for everyone else to see, uh, that has been redeemed, but it is yet to be resurrected. And those two realities produce a tension within us. A theological tension, yes, but an actual tension that you feel and know and experience and live day in and day out. 
All persons, all redeemed persons feel this. And we feel it because it affects every part of us. Both the spirit and the flesh are at work in every part of us. You will feel at times, because you are, a walking contradiction. And the text tells us plainly that we still have fleshly desires that rise up in us. And it calls us not to bring those desires that exist to completion, to fulfillment. Notice, you know, it says these desires, these fleshly desires, uh, do not need to be fulfilled or completed. But that doesn't mean the desires aren't there. The desires rise up, and Paul is saying, don't let those desires take that next step that James talks about, you know, where desires all of a sudden become full-grown, and they become enacted, and they become sins in the flesh and in the world. Instead, Paul says, don't live those things out, forsake them. But notice the Spirit is also within us, also desiring, clashing with the flesh, and we are called to be led by the Spirit and His desires. Well, notice where the level, uh, the battle rages. It rages at the level of your desires. You have these competing desires that rise up within you. A desire that will eventually give a rise to thinking and acting, but the battle begins at the level of your wanting that will eventually lead to your willing, depending on which desire you follow. And you know how this is. You want to love better. You want to speak gentler. You want to sacrifice more. You want to pray more fervently. You want to be uh, more giving and generous. But you also want your way. And you also hate to suffer fools. And you also do want to be served. And you love comfort. And so on down the list it goes. These things are at war within us. And it's constant... And it's tiring, if you haven't noticed already. And the war is so great that each, according to Paul, trips up the other. Sometimes I want to do the right thing and I do not do it. Sometimes I'm tempted to the wrong and by the Spirit's power I'm kept from it. How many times have you done or said something and you're left wondering to yourself, why? I mean, why did I say that? If I could have just held my tongue for two seconds... You know, why did I do that? It's cost me so much pain and anguish. You know, it's ruined the whole evening. If I could have just resisted, why couldn't I have just followed through on what I said I was going to do? I mean, why did I indulge in this thing? It was so unnecessary and ultimately so unsatisfying. We don't want to do it at one real and genuine level. That's what's so hard about this teaching. But we also, at another level, really do want it. We want the opposite of the thing we want. And in this way, we often feel, you know, uh, double-minded. It feels good to say just what's on your mind, doesn't it? It's good to blow off a little steam. It's good to let people have it from time to time when they're just not behaving right. It feels good to indulge in this or that temptation. If it didn't, we would never do it. And yet we also know at another level it doesn't feel good. And it's not the right thing to do to just blow off steam. This is the war of desire that, wars with, that roars within all of us. And it does so all life long.
Isn't that a cheerful thought? I mean, it doesn't get any easier the longer that you live. I mean, if you're waiting for this day of sanctification where this particular battle goes away, you're waiting for the day of your death. <laughs> I mean, that is what you're ultimately waiting for. This battle rages in this life until the resurrection. It will always be hard. And in fact, in our theological tradition, and I think in the biblical, uh, uh, um, what's testified to biblically, we are actually at most in step with the Spirit, or the Spirit is at most at work within us, when we're most aware of both this battle and our failure in it. We often think, again, that uh, 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 sanctification is this kind of climbing success story when sanctification really is uh, an awareness of your neediness time and again and the fruit that that brings, as we will see. Calvin put it this way, The godly, on the other hand, in whom the regeneration of God is begun, are so divided that with the chief desire of the heart, they aspire to God, they seek heavenly righteousness, they hate sin, and yet they are drawn down to the earth by the relics of their flesh. And thus, while pulled in two ways, they fight against their own nature, and nature fights against them. And they condemn their sins, not only as being constrained by the judgment of reason, but because they really, in their hearts, hate them. And on their account, they loathe themselves because they hate their sins. This is the Christian conflict between the flesh and the spirit of which Paul speaks in Galatians 5, Calvin writes. He continues, It has therefore been justly said that the carnal man runs headlong into sin with the approbation and consent of his whole soul, but that a division then immediately begins for the first time when he is called by the Lord and renewed by the Spirit. What an odd thing, as we will see, because obviously some of these things, as we hear them, give rise in us where we begin to doubt, well, who am I? Am I really, you know, one of Christ? But Calvin's point here, he says, you know that you have the Spirit at work within you when you finally see the wrong you do and you're at war with yourself. You hate that you can't do the good that you love and yet you love sin at, uh, at one level and you hate the fact uh, that you, you, know, you can't just do it without feeling guilty and so forth. And so in this way, Paul would say, we don't look at our behavior to see if we're Christians. We look at our knowledge of ongoing sin and our dismay about it. Our frustration with ourselves concerning this text and our desire that we could just live righteous in Christ Jesus and that these things would finally be done and gone once and for all. As Luther put it, Yea, the more godly a man is, the more he feels that battle. And hereof come those lamentable complaints of the saints and the Psalms and all of Holy Scripture. He says, the more godly you get, the more you're going to feel this battle, not the other way around. You know, if you have no tension within yourself, Luther says, you need to grow up. <laughs> you don't know your sins as you should know them. He says, but if you do know your sins, you do know what God actually requires, then you'll have this tension and frustration within you that you want to do certain things and you're not accomplishing them and so forth. Maybe you've seen the Snickers commercial. The most, well, you know, 
there's all sorts of slogans they've had over the years. When I was a kid, you know, the Snickers satisfies was the one, and you know, they would eat their Snickers bar for lunch when we were healthy back in the 80s, uh, and that would be enough to suffice. But its most popular and its longest enduring slogan and campaign featured this tagline, you're not you when you're hungry. I mean, maybe you know that feeling. You're not you when you're hungry. Paul would say, yes, you are. You are you when you're hungry. And it's revealing what's still there and what needs to be put to death. You're just like yourself when you're hungry. But Paul says, in there somewhere is good news that this battle rages within you, that it's not who you want to be, that you have other, this other new awakened desire within you to want to be holy in Christ Jesus. So there's this dueling desire, but also we want to see what Paul says, that the spirit wins. The flesh and the spirit really are two whole realms of activity. There's fallen life and the age of the fallen world. There's heavenly life and the age that is to come, the age of the new creation. These two realms are at war with one another, but ultimately the scriptures show us, and Paul will testify, the spirit wins this battle. It's not, you know, this uh, uh, unending kind of duel to the death that the Spirit ultimately has already won and that victory will become visible in the future. There will be a day when all in this creation will be resurrection. A day when our wills will be one. Which means in heaven you will do whatever you want. And everything you want to do will be the right thing to do. I mean, what an amazing idea. <laughs> but how foreign that is, right, to our current existence. That everything that we want to do, we can do. And everything that we will do will be the right thing to do. So notice in our text, the flesh and the spirit are not equals. Notice what Paul says, since you are led by the spirit. So the spirit is our general and our guide. He's the one leading us, if you will, into that heavenly kingdom. And he is greater because it's the spirit of Christ himself, the resurrected and victorious Savior. And he gives us the grace of the world that is coming to live and endure in this present world. And the struggle will continue, but the spirit prevails. And we know that because Christ is already risen. We see the future now in Christ. We know where we're headed. We know that that is our future beheld in this one man, the first fruits of a whole field that is going to be resurrected by the Spirit's power. And the Spirit prevails now every time that we say no to sin and yes to godliness. We see these little trickles, if you will, of heaven itself on earth. But Paul shows that the Spirit also prevails in one powerful and particular way that we want to discuss this week. Notice what he says in verse 18. It's a very strange conclusion. If you are led by the Spirit, you would think he's going to say, you won't act out in the flesh. But he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, a strange conclusion. We are warring. That's true. We're in this tension. That part's true. Sometimes we do the right thing. And even that's tainted with sin, according to the scriptures. And sometimes we don't do the right thing. All of this is true. 
But one thing that is also true is that you are no longer under the law. You are in a battle that you sometimes lose, but you're no longer in the game where the law has the right to condemn you and say to you that you're under its judgment and curse. You've been removed from that whole arena of living. And in that, Paul says, there is power. By faith, we are dead to the one and alive to the other. And because of that, Paul says, sin really is done for. It is finished because the power of sin, of course, is the fact that it can bring both condemnation and death. And he says, those things are gone. Sin has no more power to bring judgment or condemnation into your life. The law is still here seeking to bring a judgment against us. But the resurrection of Christ and the testimony of his righteousness declares a whole new reality for us. That game of do this and live is over for you. You have died to sin and you live to God by faith. And while your best works aren't sinless, there the Spirit is leading us to Jesus away from the law and saying it's all of grace. The game of needing to find your acceptance by doing is over. Christ is always there, the Spirit says, as he leads us to him. Christ is there as a forgiving and a justifying Savior. In the midst of this tension, even in your loss, the Spirit declares as your advocate, don't worry, you're not playing that game anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is Christ for you to take hold of, the one who has done and lived on your behalf. The Spirit wins and produces the very fruit of heaven in us, not by merely overcoming our sin, but by even showing us our sin, and in that humiliation, leading us to victory in Christ, always leading us away from ourselves to a faithful Savior who fails not. And we will see in the weeks to come, in that humble acceptance of grace, so comes the very fruit that the Spirit produces. Love and joy and peace and patience, humility. All these things, kindness and goodness, things that are not born from our uh, original fallen nature when we're here trying to justify our very existence and live a life that produces the works of the flesh. If you think this age is all there is, then you need to win here. If you think you need to prove yourself before God, you need to compete with other people. And the works of the flesh are evident. If this is all there is, then sexual immorality is what you should pursue. If this is all there is, then you should be rivals and you should be envious. Someone's getting more of the pie than you're getting. But if you belong to the Spirit and to the age to come, those things lose their power because the law and the condemnation that it was bringing you under because of your lack of performance have ultimately been brought to an end. As we will see in the weeks to come, Paul is very clear that the one who practices the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say that in order to shake our assurance. But instead, he says, if you practice these things and there's no struggle at all, there's no repentance, there's no fighting against, 
If there's no spirit leading you back to Christ as one who uh, is necessary for your salvation, your forgiveness, if this world is an end in itself and it's all that you want, then of course you have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven because you have no taste for it. The Spirit says to us in the midst of this tension and in particular in the midst of our failure, you are not under the law nor its condemnation. You are under Christ and the Spirit leads us there. As one author writes, Paul is saying, because you have the Spirit of Christ, the hopeless conflict between the flesh and the law has nothing to do with you. You can quit poking that old dog, the flesh, with the stick of the law For that is done. And so what does Paul mean then by walk with the Spirit or stay in step with the Spirit? We'll have more to say on this in the weeks to come. The first thing that we need to realize, at least for this morning's text, is that if the battle is a battle of desire, these two desires that are warring within you, two desires giving rise to things that you want and then ultimately will, right? I want this thing and so I do it. But it begins at that gut level of wanting he says, walk or, uh, with the Spirit in that first verse. Be led by the Spirit. And he uses the term that is used of what was uh, concerning disciples or those who were, were students of teachers uh, during you know, the Greco-Roman era. So if you were a follower of Socrates, you would, in one sense, you would walk where he walked. You would follow him around. You would hear his teachings. You would learn not only from what he said, but his manner of life. You would just begin to imitate him as you walked around with him. You go where he goes. You're found where he is found. And Paul is saying, do that with the Spirit. Be found where the Spirit is found. If this problem is at the level of desire, then of course, we have to ask the question, what feeds or shapes our desires? And of course, the whole of this age, in one sense, feeds the desires of the flesh. (laughs) Everywhere you look, there's something that's feeding that desire, the desires that show themselves in in competitions and jealousies and wanting more and sexual immorality, all these things that are so easy to see in our current culture and are so uh, oppressive to our own persons. And of course, if we walk in those things, then it will give rise to more and more of those desires. But if we step with the Spirit, if we walk where He walks, where if we're found where He is found, And that will also begin to shape those desires. We will see that Paul is going to go on to say that there's actually a rule of life that we're to keep concerning the Spirit. And all he means, at least for our purposes this morning, by keeping a step with the Spirit and keeping this rule, is to put yourself where the Spirit promises to be and promises to work and promises ultimately to shape you by the very desires of heaven itself. I mean, notice that we come here week in and week out to worship. We, we sing songs as a congregation. We pray prayers as a people. We confess our sins, you know, with these same prayers week in and week out. And in so doing, as we come under the preaching of the word and the giving of the sacraments and the prayers of the people and the songs of the church, 
Well, what's that doing to us? Well, it's shaping our desires. It's giving a taste, uh, giving us a taste for things that the Spirit has a taste for. And in so doing, we are keeping in step with Him. If you look at the prayers of the church, and in particular, uh, some of the prayers that we use in our weekly service, uh, several of them are written by Thomas Cramner, the famous uh, Anglican uh, who was of Reformed persuasion. And if you read a lot of his prayers in the prayer book, you can see that he definitely gets most of the language for his prayers concerning our lives from Galatians chapter 5. His prayer before the Lord's Supper, for instance, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. So notice he's coming to the Lord's Supper and he's saying, Lord, you know everything. Our hearts are open to you and you know all of our desires. And so what's his prayer? His prayer is, so cleanse our thoughts and give us new desires by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might love you rightly and want the things that you want. And so again, how do we keep in step with the Spirit? We put ourselves under the things where the Spirit has promised to meet us and work. In the preaching of the word, in the giving of the sacraments, in the reading of scripture at home, in the songs of the saints, all of those things that give us a taste for the things of the world to which we are headed. And in so doing, give a shape and a rise to our desires that will hopefully give us the grace to battle more and more against the desires of the flesh. Cramner writes also, uh, as we start coming to a conclusion, Almighty God, you alone can order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men. Grant your people that they may love the thing which you command and desire that which you promise. And so, among the sundry manifold changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. So notice the prayers of the saints that should be on your lips as, as you pray throughout the week. Lord, you know my heart and its desires. By your spirit, reshape those desires in order that I might love you rightly and follow in your ways. And so, may this be the encouragement this morning. That this is a life of tension. Uh, you feel it, uh, hopefully, and that's good news. It shows that the work of the spirit has begun within you. And you should get used to that tension, because it's not going anywhere. Uh, but in that tension, you should have this confidence. One, that the Spirit is already victorious in Christ Jesus. The tension you feel will come to full fruition and end when you see Jesus and are like Him. But until that day, keep in step with the Spirit. Put yourself where the Spirit promises to be in order that he may have permission to reshape your desires and loves, that in your wanting will lead to willing that is beautiful in the sight of God and good for your own humanity. Let's pray.